As we begin the message, let me, as I do from time to time, give you a one-question true or false quiz. And of course, you don't need to answer this out loud. It's just to stimulate your thinking and get you wrestling with the topic at hand. And here is the question or the statement. It's actually a statement, and you would then indicate in your own heart and mind if you think this is true or false. Here is the statement. Because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world, it is impossible to be joyful all the time. The answer to that is actually false. Many Christians would say it's impossible, but not the Apostle Paul. Please turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. And as I read verse 4, our text for this message, keep in mind that if Paul wrote this verse himself, and what I mean is we know that he often used a stenographer or menuensis, and he dictated his letters, but if he wrote these words himself, he probably had to drag a chain across the desk because he was a prisoner chained to a Roman soldier. And yet he writes... In verse 4 of Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If you have ever done a study of the letter to the church at Philippi, known as Philippians, then you know that it is a letter of joy. In this letter, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice or rejoicing, some form of the word joy, 16 different times in four brief chapters. This verse is sort of the pinnacle of his encouragement to joy. Notice the double emphasis and the word always as I read the verse for us again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In the opening verses of this fourth chapter, Paul is telling us how to do what he exhorted in verse 1, namely to stand fast in the Lord. He's telling us how to stand fast in the Lord. We saw in the last message of this series that one of the keys to standing fast in the Lord is to maintain unity with other believers. This exhortation here in verse 4 To rejoice is another key to standing fast in the Lord. I find it interesting to note where Paul places this exhortation. It's just a few verses removed from his statement in chapter 3, verse 18, about weeping. That sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. As I said when we started this series a while back, joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. We tend to think that way, but joy and sorrow are really not mutually exclusive. Let me show you an example of this in the life of our Lord. Look, first of all, at the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Back to John 11. And by the way, maybe more than any message for months now, we are going to look at a boatload of passages, so you can turn to as many as you want to to turn to with me, or if you just want to listen as I read them, that's up to you. But we are going to be looking at a lot of passages to put this thought together. This chapter, John 11, records the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And we pick up the story in verse 33, 
where it says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? Jesus wept. He wept because he hurt to see his dear friends hurting. He did what Paul would later write in Romans when he says, weep with those who weep. He was deeply moved because of the sorrow that sickness and death brought to this dear group of people. Verse 37, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So here on this occasion, Jesus entered into the sorrow and grief of death. This should not surprise us because the prophet Isaiah said the Messiah would do this. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4 say that the Messiah will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus experienced sorrow. In fact, I believe, personally, because of his perfection, the depth of his sorrow was greater than anything any human being has ever experienced. Look at chapter 12, the next chapter of John's Gospel, verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Notice that Jesus didn't say, what shall I do? There was no question what he would do. His statement was, what shall I say? As Jesus talked in this context about the necessity of his death, he began to think of all that it would involve. He realized the excruciating price he would have to pay for our sins. He thought about the fact that he would become sin and would be punished by his own father and drink the, the cup of his father's wrath. And he thought about the, the fact that he and his father would be separated at that time. And as he thought about all of this, he did so with mixed emotions. He wanted to ask to be delivered but he knew that the entire reason behind the incarnation was for the purpose of dying as man's substitute. What we see here in this verse is a glimpse of the agony he would go through three days later in the Garden of Gethsemane. I find it fascinating that John doesn't tell us about Jesus' struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he does tell us about this struggle. And Jesus came to the same conclusion both times. He would go through with it in spite of the grief and sorrow he would experience. So Jesus experienced sorrow, deep sorrow, profound sorrow. But look at what he said in chapter 15 of this gospel. Just a few days later in the upper room, as Jesus spent his final night with his men, in chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Now think of this. It almost sounds contradictory. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and yet he also said, men, I want you to have my joy. I want you to have my joy so you will have fullness of joy. So you see, joy and sorrow are not really mutually exclusive. 
The reason I say that is because some Christians think that when they are experiencing sorrow, that somehow they are sinning because they are displeasing the Lord because they're not being joyful. They know about statements of regarding joy, rejoicing always, and so they somehow conclude, oh, I, I must be sinning because I'm in sorrow. Paul even said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that believers sorrow, but we are not to sorrow as those who have no hope. We can have joy in the midst of sorrow because of our future hope. This is the kind of joy Jesus experienced. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was it that got Jesus through the difficulty of that experience? Well, the writer of Hebrews says it was the hope of his future joy, the joy set before him. We can have joy in the midst of sorrow because of our future hope. So in Philippians 4.4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So what I want us to do in this message, as I mentioned a moment ago, we'll look at a lot of passages, is talk about how we can have, or how we can rejoice in the Lord always and what it is that can potentially rob us of our joy or our ability to rejoice in the Lord always. A little side note, whenever I put together a message, I always consult a number of different resources to stimulate my thinking. Sometimes I use virtually none of what I read or listen to, and other times I use a great deal of material that I interact with. In this message, I am greatly indebted to one source in particular called Christian Joy, where, which stimulated a lot of my thoughts for this message. Now let me begin developing this subject with a statement that could be considered outlandish if you take it out of the context of this message. Here is the statement. There is nothing that can happen in our lives that should extinguish our joy as believers. Let me say that again. There is nothing that can happen in our lives that should extinguish our joy as believers. In fact, let me go so far as to say this. If something happens, apart from sin, that does extinguish our joy, then we have sinned. Now, in light of all the terrible troubles we face in life, that sounds absurd. It sounds preposterous. Yet in Philippians 4.4, God says, Rejoice in the Lord Always. So think about it this way. If we don't do that, then we're not obeying a clear command of Scripture. Therefore, if you don't obey Scripture, it's sin, right? There is nothing that can happen in our lives that should extinguish our joy as believers. And by the way, this isn't the only place, Philippians 4, the only place in Scripture where God says something like this, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament, says, Rejoice always. Again, we are commanded to rejoice always. Even Romans 12.15, which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, doesn't contradict this command because Romans 12, 15 is simply saying we, like our Lord, are to identify with the hurts of other people. 
But even in the midst of sorrow, we can rejoice. Paul did. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says this, describing himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Isn't that fascinating? As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Even in the midst of sorrow, we can rejoice. For example, in Acts chapter 5, we have a record of some of the early persecution to the church. And we read in Acts 5 verse 40, they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name or for the name of Jesus. Even in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas had been beaten with rods, thrown into prison, jammed into stocks, it says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were rejoicing. In the upper room discourse recorded in John 13 through 17, Jesus mentioned joy or full joy eight times. Eight different times. It was certainly an important subject to leave with the disciples. So we are commanded in Scripture to rejoice always even when we suffer. You probably remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the immortal Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me be the first to say I have certainly not always done that. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. That's not our natural first reaction. And in Luke chapter 6, we have a similar statement from Jesus. Luke 6 verses 22 and 23 where we read this. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you. And cast your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Paul exemplified this joy even in the midst of suffering. Do you remember what he said in Colossians 1.24? He said, as a prisoner, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for you. The people to whom the writer of Hebrews wrote were exemplary in this way. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, say this. The writer of Hebrews says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me in my chains. And listen, joyfully, 
accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. If we keep the right perspective, we can even rejoice in the midst of adversity. Isn't this what we're commanded to do? James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy. So, we are commanded to rejoice always, even when we suffer. There is nothing that can happen in our lives that should extinguish our joy as believers. You say, but that's not normal or natural. And you're right. That isn't. It's not natural. It's supernatural. In Galatians 5.22, Paul said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. This kind of joy is produced by the Holy Spirit of God. But listen, it's not produced in your life against your will or apart from you, you're being engaged. After all, you and I are the ones commanded to rejoice. Those verses weren't written to the Holy Spirit. Rejoice always. They're written to us. And this fits with every command of the Christian. We are to work out our own salvation, but it is God who works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. So your will, your volition, your, whatever term you want to use, activity, involvement is part of the process. So what is joy? Let me give you a definition. It's not one that I've worked out real technically, but this is one, a working definition. Joy is the emotion that comes from the deep assurance that God is in complete control of our circumstances and He uses those circumstances for our good and His glory. Let me say that again. What is joy? It is the emotion that comes from the deep assurance that God is in complete control of our circumstances. And he uses those circumstances for our good and his glory. That's the joy God speaks of in Scripture. You could say it this way. It is an emotion that stems from a fact. As I've said many times in the past, God never intended emotions to lead us, but rather to respond to respond to truth. Joy is an emotional response based on a fact or based on the truth. God is in complete control of our circumstances and He uses those circumstances for our good and His glory. And beloved, if you will get that truth implanted in your heart and mind, it forms the basis for you to rejoice in the Lord always. The basis for our joy is not our unchanging circumstances. The basis for our joy is the unchanging character of God. The fullness of our joy, please catch this, the fullness of our joy is directly related to our view of God. If you see God as sovereign and good, you can rejoice always. Psalm 16, if you want to turn to it or just listen as I read it, Psalm 16, listen to what the psalmist said in verses 8 and 9. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me 
Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. The psalmist was glad and rejoiced because he contemplated God and his character. He begins this by saying, I have set the Lord always before me. Psalm 28 adds more. Psalm 28, verse 7, says this. 28, verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise Him. Again, the same idea. And this is throughout the Psalms. Psalm 89 is another example. Psalm 89, verse 16. Here the psalmist says this, In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. Again I say, our joy is based on the character of God. If you understand Hebrew thought or Hebrew terminology, then you know that's what it means here when it refers to God's name. In your name they rejoice all day long. His name stands for His character. So the psalmist is saying we rejoice in his holy, omnipotent, gracious character. That's why Nehemiah 8.10 says the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you learn to rejoice always because of your assurance that God is in complete control of all of your circumstances and he uses all of those circumstances for your good and his glory, then you are strong. To take this a step further, I would say this. We not only rejoice based on who God is, we also rejoice because what he has done for us in Christ. You remember that profound statement that Jesus made in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, when the disciples went out and they returned rejoicing because the demons were subject to them? And Jesus said to them in response, Nevertheless, Luke 10, 20, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Paul made a similar statement in Romans 5. I want you to turn to that one with me, to Romans chapter 5. Because here he talks about the basis of our ability to rejoice. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now watch. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because God has justified us, and because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can rejoice regardless of the circumstances. That's why Paul says what he does in the next verses. Look at the connection here. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. You see, even tribulations don't extinguish our joy when we see them through the grid of what God has done for us in Christ and what He's doing in us. And this thought is several places in the New Testament. Skip over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, notice how Peter says it. He says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that is a that is a mouthful, a mindful of glorious truth about our salvation. So coming off of that, it's not surprising that he says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. By the way, another reminder that grief and joy are not mutually exclusive. He said, I understand you're grieving by these trials. But you rejoice also that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, now remember, they're going through various trials, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So we not only rejoice because of who God is, we also rejoice because of what He has done for us in Christ. That's the Father. That's the Son. You know we're going to add the Spirit to this list. We also rejoice because of the work of the Spirit within us. In Romans chapter 14, Paul mentions this, hints at this. Romans 14, verse 13, he says this, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know, amen, convinced by the Lord Jesus, there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your, food, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food, the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace, now here we go, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to produce joy within us. That's why, again, Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, we rejoice because of who God is. We rejoice because of what He has done for us in Christ. And we rejoice because of the work of the Spirit within us. And since none of those things ever change, beloved, we can rejoice in the Lord always. You see, if we belong to Christ, we cannot lose. Not ultimately. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 1 when he was contemplating this? He says in Philippians 1.20, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, and yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul says, listen, I, I don't know which one to choose because 
Both are great options. We can't lose. If we die, we go to be with Christ. If we live, we experience the joy that comes through serving Christ. We can't lose. God's character doesn't change. His work in in us through Christ is certain and secure. And the Spirit continually works in us to make us more like Christ. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Add to that the fact that God has given us His perfect Word, and that gives us even more reason to rejoice. Psalm 19 says, The statutes of the Lord are right. Ready for this? Rejoicing the heart. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Having the Word of God is reason to rejoice in the Lord always. Let me add another one to the list. We can rejoice in the Lord always because of the Christian friends and Christian fellowship God has given us. Paul indicates this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9, where he says this. He says, For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God night and day praying exceedingly. Paul rejoiced because of his Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. To the Philippians, he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of my making requests for you all with joy. The love and fellowship of other believers is a tremendous source of joy, and it will never be broken. So we can rejoice in the Lord always. We can rejoice in the Lord always. But we don't always rejoice. Why? Well, let me mention a list of reasons why. One reason for a lack of joy is a lack of true salvation. If you don't really know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have access to the source of true joy. The Holy Spirit doesn't reside within producing true joy. So if you haven't been born again, then you don't have access to the true source of of joy. So that's one possible reason why some people lack joy or are unable to rejoice in the Lord always. They're not in the Lord. They don't know the Lord. They can't rejoice in the Lord always. A second reason for a lack of joy is the work of Satan. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says in verse 7, therefore, or no, not therefore, that's a little, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom whom he may devour. Satan wants to steal our joy by tempting us to sin or by giving us the wrong perspective on our adversity and our trials or by by somehow blocking us from doing what verse 7 says, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. The work of Satan, one of the works of Satan is to rob us of joy. A third reason for lack of joy is ignorance of true doctrine. You may be surprised to hear this. Many Christians are surprised to hear this. But bad theology steals your joy. It does. If you don't know and understand the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the work of Christ for us, the work of the Spirit within us, then that will diminish your joy. Any kind of inaccurate doctrine will diminish your joy. 
That's just one of the reasons why you ought to long to know the Word of God and be diligent to know the Word of God. 1 John 1, 4 says, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. In other words, God has given us His Word not only for our instruction but also for our joy. But if we don't know the Word of God, then we sacrifice joy. Few things are sadder as a shepherd, as a pastor, to be working with someone and realize that they have some totally inaccurate view of God, some totally wrong view of truth or theology. And as you work with them, you realize that that bad theology has crippled them. And it's something they wouldn't have to experience. And once they come to the truth, it's just so free. Bad theology steals joy. Wrong thinking steals joy. Closely related, a fourth reason for lack of joy is unbelief. If we don't know the truth of God, then we forfeit joy. But if we know it and don't believe it, then we forfeit joy. If we refuse to believe what God has said in His Word, then we sacrifice joy. A fifth reason for a lack of joy is ungratefulness. The person who never has enough, always wants more, always expects more, always wants something different, can't experience the joy of contentment. Ingratitude kills joy. As I've said in the past, some people are just like this. They can walk through a beautiful meadow and find find the only cow pie in it. That's just the way they are. Just so ungrateful, so focused on that one thing. A sixth reason for a lack of joy is false expectations. In other words, if you expect if you expect God to make your life rich, happy, successful, healthy, healthy and full of miracles, let me tell you something. You're going to be disappointed. You, you set yourself up for disappointment. And tragically, we, as you know, even have people preaching those things and promising those things to people. That's not what God is all about. His goal is to make us like Christ so we can experience true and full joy. In John 16, Jesus said, In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. I don't hear a lot of Christians wanting to claim that promise. There are a lot of other promises that we like to claim. That's one we don't like. But it's, it's true whether we want to claim it or not. In this world, you'll have tribulation. In this world, you have trouble. But we can still rejoice in the Lord always. A seventh reason for a lack of joy is self-centeredness. If you center all your attention on yourself, you will not experience true joy. The most miserable people in the world are those who who are totally enamored with self. Self Self-focused. Please hear this, beloved. Self-focus is deadly to joy. That's one of the major problems with much of the counseling that goes on today. Many counselors today tell you to listen to yourself. But emotionally healthy people don't listen to themselves. They talk to themselves. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this about Psalm 42. You remember Psalm 42 where the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to his soul. 
And based on that, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written this, quote, We must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Do you realize what that means? The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is this. We allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment here in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand, address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged to do, end quote. That's good, solid counsel. Because self-centeredness absolutely kills joy. An eighth reason for a lack of joy is forgetfulness. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. When we forget all the good things God has done for us, we forfeit joy. And that's why we are exhorted there not to forget. A ninth reason for a lack of joy is a failure to pray. Go back to Philippians 4 as we close. We'll read about this one and add one more to the list and and close. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness, your graciousness, your forbearance be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasseth all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When we shoulder our own burdens rather than taking them to the Lord, we forfeit joy. The songwriter said it so well many, many years ago. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If you're like me, then your pattern is something like this. Something happens in your life, and it's a burden. It's something that causes anxiety. And if you worry about it long enough, you might eventually pray about it. 
That's the tendency I see in my own life. Paul says, don't make this response number five or six. Make it response number one. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. So lack, a reason for, a ninth reason for lack of joy is a failure to pray. And then finally, a tenth reason for a lack of joy is living by bad feelings or emotions. If you run your life by bad emotions rather than by God's truth, you will sacrifice joy. Remember, true joy is not an emotion on top of a feeling. It is an emotion on top of facts, an emotion on top of truth. We must learn to live by God's truth and not by our negative emotions. God created us to be rational beings and our feelings are to be affected by reason. That's why we must build the truth of God into our lives by memorizing Scripture, studying Scripture, meditating on Scripture, and applying Scripture. Listen, there there are lots of reasons in life to have negative emotions. Listen, every every one of us in this room has been hurt by others, disappointed by others, and you can just grab that stuff and latch onto it and live your life by those negative emotions, always chewing on that, regurgitating that, and you will sacrifice and forfeit joy. So a lack of joy, a reason for a lack of joy is living by bad feelings or emotions. Beloved, here's the point. Paul is not unrealistic when he says rejoice in the Lord always. We can. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is another reminder to us that you have given us your truth, your word for our own good. We sometimes wrongly think that you have given us your word as some kind of restriction to us. We, we view Scripture wrongly, that, that you are some kind of cosmic killjoy, and you give us all these rules to live by just so we'll be miserable. What a, what a wrong view of you and your word. You have given us your word as a reminder to us, as an instruction to us, that we can, we can rejoice in the Lord always. We can live life that way. Certainly we will have sorrow. Certainly we will have grief, as we've seen in this message. Those, those are not mutually exclusive to joy. We can even have joy in the midst of our sorrow. We can have joy in the midst of our grief. So we can rejoice in the Lord always. Teach us what that means. Teach us how to do that more faithfully. Teach us how to be on guard for those things that would rob our joy or steal our joy or cause us to forfeit our joy. Instead of being people who represent the Lord Jesus sort of with a a sourpuss attitude, may we be people who rejoice, uh, who represent the Lord Jesus with joy. Grant that we would live our lives in that manner for the glory of Christ and for our own good as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.